Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Welcome, everyone. I'm thankful you're here. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you through your son, for we pray in his name, amen. We're in the midst of a sermon series that we've entitled All Saints Envisioned, and through it, we're trying to rearticulate the identity and vision of our church. And last week, I preached on hospitality, which I told you in the Bible is literally the love of strangers. I mentioned Greg Thompson's work on this topic. And he points out that for almost 1,500 years, from the second century all the way to the 16th century, if you were traveling anywhere between North Africa in the south and Scotland to the north and India in the east, all the way to Spain in the west, if you were traveling in that time period, in that place, you were day after day scanning the horizons for one thing. And what was it? A cross. Because regardless if you were a Christian or not, you knew that the churches and the monasteries would take you in. They would give you shelter and food and safety and a warm bed. So travelers might know nothing other, anything other than about our faith than that they would be welcomed as strangers. Hospitality was so central to the identity and the mission of the church, then so central, the various rules that govern life in the monasteries, they always had a section on hospitality. Uh, like this one from the Rule of St. Benedict, which is a fifth century document. It reads, all guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. For he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. All humility should be shown in addressing a guest on arrival or departure by a bow of the head or by a complete prostration of the body. Christ is to be adored because he indeed is welcomed in them. The abbot shall pour water on the hands of the guests, and then the abbot and the entire community shall wash their feet. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor people, because in them, more particularly, Christ is received. 
It makes me think that we need to revamp our welcome team here at the church, but also it grieves me a little bit because our neighbors still wander the world, but they're no longer looking for us and they're no longer expecting anything like this from us. This week, there was an independent commission that released its findings on this sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church in France. And over the last 70 years, 3,000 priests and a number of other leaders in the church abused 300,000 people, mostly children. And Pope Francis this week, he's, he expressed what he calls personal shame and then called on all Catholics to, quote, ensure that the church remains a safe house for all. And many people here, as well as there, they have not experienced the church to be that. Hospitality is now more important for us than ever. And that was last week, welcoming strangers in. But this week we have to ask, are we going out to look for them? And when we find strangers out in the roads of the world in need, what do we do? The parable of the Good Samaritan, which was just read for you, it ultimately asks, do we love like Jesus commands? And so three points this morning about that love. Number one, what it's like. Number two, who it's for. Number three, where it's from. First of all, what it's like. This is one of the most well-known, best-known parables, so much so that the word Samaritan has entirely positive connotations for us when we hear it. We think of things like the Samaritan's Purse, the International Relief Organization, or even Samaritan's Health Services, but Jesus's original audience would have heard it and received it with entirely negative connotations. The very word elicited disdain, disgust, and hatred from his listeners. Because Jews and Samaritans at the time, as I've so often told you, they were uttering complete enemies at every level of life, ethnically, religiously, culturally, politically, enemies. And that's why Jesus uses this word. It's very intentional. He intends to unsettle those that he's speaking to. And if that doesn't happen for us through this word, or even through this parable as a whole, because it's so familiar to us, Luke 10 as a chapter should. Because chapters one through nine in the book of Luke are all about who Jesus is. But then it shifts and chapters 10 through 18 are all about what it means to follow after Jesus as a disciple, to believe in him and to follow after him. And chapter 10 begins this discipleship portion and it begins at verses one through 24, which we didn't read, we don't have time for that. But that section is all about the gospel message. In that section, Jesus sends out 72 of his disciples all throughout Israel with the gospel message about himself, the news about who he is, Son of God, Messiah, only Savior of the world. But then there's a shift at verse 25 in our passage, and it reads like a description of social work. There's, there's no emphasis upon the message. The Samaritan doesn't say anything to the beaten man whatsoever. So the first part is about the message of the gospel, and the second part is about the deeds of the gospel. And that's Luke 10. But historically, the church in America has completely divorced these two halves completely divorced them, separated, choosing often to embrace and to emphasize one at the expense of the other, completely ignoring the other side. And some of you are familiar with this, you know about what's called the, gospel, the social gospel movement from about 100 years or so ago. Many Christians at that time, many churches decided that the message of the gospel was no longer appropriate for a modern pluralistic society like we were entering into then and have fully come into now. And so they effectively changed the message. And the social gospel was just do the deeds of the service that Jesus modeled, but don't worry about the message that he preached. And thus what we consider the theologically liberal church in America was born at that time. But what about the theologically conservative church? What did we, and I say we, because that's part of the church that we represent, our church here and also our denomination. What did we do in response? 
All too often, it was usually the equally extreme opposite response. We chose to try and protect the message of the gospel by emphasizing it and embracing it alone and ignoring the deeds of the gospel, the very deeds that we read of the Good Samaritan doing here. Things like meeting the physical needs of those that we encounter. Physical needs, health needs, medical needs, shelter for the homeless, food for the hungry, protection for the vulnerable, transportation for those without it, for the stranded, money for the robbed, aid for the poor. All the things that the Good Samaritan does here, we not only largely quit doing those things, we also began to hold into suspicion those who advocated them or did them themselves. In other words, these deeds became things that people did and we associated them with not believing the gospel or believing some sort of false gospel of works righteousness. But all the while we had Luke 10 in its entirety, which insists that both are essential for following Jesus. You, you can't, in other words, you can't be truly evangelical without these social deeds. And you'll never fully do these social deeds without the evangel, without the historic biblical message about Jesus. So why did we tear them apart? And why do we continue to tear them apart? I wonder if it has something to do with the cost that the deeds of the gospel incur, that the message of the gospel doesn't, because they each have their cost, but they're not the same. So if you believe the gospel message and communicate it to others in your life with your words as, as truth, as capital T truth, with objective truth and meaning for all people, there will be a cost. That's pretty much what we talked about all summer in studying the book of Acts. It will cost you friends, it will cost you approval, acceptance with society, it will cost you ridicule, scorn, it will cost you some degree of peace in your life. One of the examples that I always think of when talking about this is Flannery O'Connor. When she was at the University of Iowa's Writers' Workshop, she was invited to New York City to a dinner with a bunch of famous New York elite literary people. And throughout the dinner, she didn't say a word because she was so intimidated by the company. She wrote to a friend later and said, having me there was like having a dog present who had been trained to say a few words, but overcome with inadequacy, I'd forgotten all of them. That's how she felt. And then after dinner, it got worse because the host began to poke fun at the Christian faith, trying to goad Flannery into defending it. This host had left the Christian faith a number of years before, and she began saying things like, I'm just really glad that the Eucharist is such a nice symbol and that, that it has meaning for some people. And so Flannery, finally realizing what was happening, said, well, if it's only a symbol, then to hell with it. In other words, if it doesn't have objective meaning for all, then it's nothing. And she got up and she walked out. And that's part of the cost of the message of the gospel. And the theologically conservative church like us, we've historically been more willing to embrace and to bear that cost than the cost of the deeds of the gospel, which are what? It's, it's not, not the same. Like, we won't endure scorn and ridicule from the world if we do the deeds that the, God, the, the Good Samaritan does here for this man. In fact, we might be applauded. It's a different cost. And so what is it? Well, the cost of the deeds of the gospel all too often are time and energy and physical effort, and physical safety, and money. It's as if we collectively agreed, give me ridicule and scorn, but let me keep my schedule and my wealth and my safety, and then I'm good. I'll bear the first if I can only continue to hold on to the second. But then we get to Luke 10, and Jesus says, if you're gonna follow after me, you have to be willing to give up both, because that's what love looks like in a dying world, for a dying world that needs that love. That's what the love looks like. But who is the love for? 
Because as unsettling as that might be, this is the more unsettling part, especially for this lawyer here. Because he's unsettled not so much by what he has to give, but by who he has to give it to. Did you notice that? That's his question. A lawyer in that time, you need to know, was not a lawyer like many of you are lawyers. A lawyer then was a biblical scholar. And he's trying to trap Jesus and catch him in a theological error in order to expose him as a fraud. And why would he want to do that? Because, as I've told you, we've been looking at these parables, Jesus continually, especially in the the Gospel of Luke, welcomes sinners, quote unquote, which is a categorical people and type of person in that day and age. It wasn't sinful humanity in general. It was the most notorious moral failures that that culture looked upon and held in contempt. Tax collectors, prostitutes especially. And because Jesus welcomed and received these who most publicly and notoriously disobeyed the law, the assumption of this lawyer and many others is that Jesus didn't follow the law. He didn't actually believe in following it. So he asked him this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers his question with a question, what's the Old Testament say? And then he gives this summary, it's classic summary. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, correct. And he's done at that point. But the lawyer's not done. He wants more. He wants to know who Jesus believes counts as a neighbor. In other words, tell me who the Old Testament says that I have to show love with sacrificial self-giving deeds. In other words, where's the limit? Where's the line for someone who qualifies as a neighbor? And it begs a question for us, who do we not want to be our neighbors? Who do you not want to move in next door to you? Who, if they were lying on the side of the road, would you pass by on the other side? Did you hear that phrase? Has a kind of a haunting cadence. Pass by on the other side, pass by on the other side. Who would you pass by on the other side? And all the UT alums in here this morning collectively say, us sooner, especially this morning. Especially Joel Pardue, if he's wearing those OU pants like he's wearing right out there. So be, be careful, be careful, Joel. Bad day, it's a bad day today. But seriously, What limits on showing love do you want God to endorse? And let's be honest, we often want God to limit love to people who are like us and to people who like us. That's effectively what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy. For if you only love those who love you and if you only greet your brothers, those who are like you, Do not even the Gentiles do the same. In other words, the love that the scripture calls for and commands is so much more than what the world does because everyone in this world, for the most part, they they love those that are like them, their family, generally, or friends, or those who have a common cultural background or a common ethnicity, common upbringing, common religion, common politics, common nationality. We love, we're, we're kind to people like us. And also if those who are not like us are first and foremost kind and show some concern, kindness to us, then we'll return the favor for the most part. But what about those who aren't like you in any way or those who don't like you in any way? Because that's the characters in the parable. It's the Jews and the Samaritans. They hated each other. They were not like each other in any way and they did not like each other. And you see this, you feel it from the lawyer. Do you notice his last words, the very last things that he says? Jesus asks him a question. Who's the one who proved to be a neighbor? And he can't even choke out the word Samaritan. He can't even say the word. 
He has to say, the one who showed him mercy. Because love your neighbor and hate your enemy was so utterly ingrained in his soul. There was an absolute massive divide between the two, between neighbor and enemy. A massive categorical difference, but not for Jesus. For Jesus, neighbor and enemy are one in the same when it comes to love. And so too are deserving and undeserving. Just read the text. What does the, what does the priest and the Levi both do? And by the way, these were the men in ancient Israel who were responsible for doing what they didn't do. They were the ones that were given the alms to the poor. They took the tithes and the offerings of God's people and they were supposed to meet needs just like this in situations just like this and they don't do it. So why don't they do it? And maybe it was because they didn't know if this guy was dead or not. And if they would go over and touch a dead guy, then according to the law, they would be ceremonially unclean and unable to serve in the temple. So in other words, I've got better responsibilities. I've got a more important job and greater responsibilities than dealing with this person right here. Or maybe they were just smart and they were wise. And they knew that maybe this guy wasn't dead because maybe this just happened and the robbers weren't very far away. So if I linger here, those robbers will get me too. Or maybe they just thought this guy got what he deserved. Maybe this was the inevitable outcome of foolish, sinful choices and it's God's judgment on him and maybe he just deserves it. You ever think like that? You ever see someone in some situation and think they deserve that? Well, regardless if they do or they don't, does that remove your responsibility to help them? Think about it this way. What reason does Jesus give for this man's suffering other than the robbers? What reason does he give? He gives no reason. Then also, what reason does Jesus give for the priest and the Levite not helping the beaten man? Again, he gives no reason. And why? Because apparently there are no good reasons to give. Apparently, God doesn't care about our reasons for not helping someone in need. And I know what some of you are thinking. And I've read When Helping Hurts that book and other books like it and other arguments like that one makes. But those books and those arguments, they never say just because you might not help perfectly, don't ever help. They don't say that. And right now in our church, we have multiple people who are doing things like this. They're taking in children who are not their own. One person in our church is taking in a relative's newborn baby because that mother is not able, capable right now of, of being a good mother. And also some of you are volunteering at our ESL ministry, our side-by-side -side kids ministry. And those folks who are coming to those ministry have all sorts of needs, very much like the one that the Good Samaritan meets here. And I should just stop and say, thank you. Thank you for participating and meeting those needs. I've also been asked by others who are not involved in ministry, does our help extend beyond teaching to financial needs and meeting other needs? And I've of course said, yes, it does at times. Then another question is often, do we know the immigration status of those that we help? Is a legal immigration status or them being a Christian a prerequisite for us helping them? And no, it's not. And why? Because there are neighbors. Because there, there are neighbors. And according to Jesus, that's what all people are. They are those that the love that he commands is for. So third and final point. If this is love, then where is it from? And it doesn't come from doing. 
That's the lawyer's first question, and it's all wrong in many ways. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer is, just love God with all your heart. Just do that. Just love God with all your heart, all the time, in every part of your life, and everyone like a neighbor. And by the way, a neighbor is someone who meets other people's needs with all the speed, focus, concern, care, and power that you meet your own need. So just do that. Do that with all people, all friends, family, enemies, the deserving, the undeserving alike. Just do that and you'll live. In fact, loving all people all the time without fail is what proves that you love God with all your heart. So just do that and you'll live. And he can't, he can't. His answer is all right and all wrong at the same time. His answer is the way of life, but it's not the way to life. There's a massive difference between those two. He needs more than duty to enable him. He needs more than morality. He needs more than the law. The Levite and the priest, as I said earlier, it was their duty. It was their vocation more so than anyone else to do what they failed to do. And that's the point. They would have known if this guy and this guy armed only with morality and only with the law, if they can't do it, then nobody can. And that's the point. That's the parable. Duty, law, and morality can only take you so far. It can't take you to the radically sacrificial place that Jesus is calling you to go. Go and do likewise. How? Well, here's how. The key is where Jesus places the lawyer in the story. Where's the lawyer in the story? Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say a man just like you, lawyer, was riding along and behold, there was a Samaritan lying beaten in the ditch beside the road, tossed away. And the lawyer climbed down from his great and noble steed and served and helped the lowly suffering Samaritan. He doesn't say that, and why? Because what would the lawyer have said? Well, first of all, he probably would have laughed at Jesus's face and he said, I would never do that. And someone like me would never do that because this guy is getting what he deserves because love your neighbors, but hate your enemies. I would never do that. Jesus doesn't tell a story that implicitly asks the question, would you extend grace to someone who's undeserving? Rather, he puts the lawyer in the road and he puts the Samaritan in the saddle. And he implicitly asks, if you were undeserving and you were in the road and you were dying and the situation was like this, you were bleeding to death in a ditch, tossed away and your only hope was the act of absolutely free grace from someone who saw you as an enemy and who owed you nothing but to pass you by, would you want grace? If that was the situation, would you want grace? And friends, that is the situation. That is the situation for you, it is the situation for me. The lawyer is in the road and Jesus is the Samaritan and we're the lawyer, every one of us. Because the gospel is Jesus as God in human frame. He came to a lost and a dying world and he gave everything. Just like this, this Samaritan that we call good. He gave everything. He left the wonders and the worship of heaven to take our place in the road, to die on the cross for the consequences of what we do deserve. And he was raised from the dead so that he might continually go out to the roads of this world to help those who are in danger of dying from sin and death and hell and to rescue them. And here's what the parable asks. The parable asks this lawyer and you this morning, what if you had an experience of God's radical grace like that? Would it change your heart? Would it change your heart? Would it change who you love? Would it change how you love, who you saw as your neighbor, who you were willing to love as yourself because God himself has loved you 
as himself would change your heart because you're in the road. So do you want grace? Because it will change your heart. It can't not change your heart. That's what 1 John 4 is all about because it says God is love. So any love that we show, it's not ours, it's his. By faith and through baptism, God himself has come to dwell in our hearts by his spirit. And if we are loving anyone like this, we are loving them with his love, with the very love with which he first loved us and poured it out into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. So you're in the road. And we're doing this capital campaign. Here's where I close. We're doing this capital campaign right now because by God's grace, we can. And I mean that very literally because so many of you and we have experienced the grace of God. We now have the God-given capacity to give, to give like we read of here being this man giving, like the Samaritan gives. And so we're paying off all of our debt through this capital campaign in order to free up finances so that we might do things like hire All Saints' first Latino pastor, first non-white pastor in 18 years to hire him so that he might go and lead these ministries to our neighbors in a, in a more fully effective way. And I'm excited to report that we've hired that guy and he'll be here with his family in June. It's very exciting. But we're also putting two crosses on our buildings, one right above me, the north end here of the interim sanctuary, and also one on the south eve of the chapel. And we're doing so, so that maybe, just maybe, by God's grace, our neighbors will begin again to scan the horizon and to look for the cross and seeing these crosses, they might believe that they once again will be welcomed and served with an astonishing sacrificial neighbor love, regardless of who they are, regardless if they're like us or not like us, regardless of what they've done or what they have not done, they will come here and they will be served. The cross above the chapel is being erected in memory of Andrew Halton, who many of you know and knew. He died four years ago, this month actually, at a young age, I think he was 35, died one day before his birthday. And he was many things. He was a member of our original building committee and his fingerprints are all over this campus. He also was a deacon here at our church and a dear friend to me and to many of you. And he was also a good Samaritan. And those you know, knew him know that. He was one who knew the grace of God to him in Christ and in turn loved others with that very love that had been poured into his heart, especially the poor and especially the vulnerable, and especially those in desperate need of basic human necessities. So he took many trips to Africa and many trips to Haiti. In fact, he was on one of the final private planes into Haiti after the 2010 earthquake with another church member, Paul Dennison, who was already here this morning. And two of them went in there and they risked everything, everything at that time in order to help others who are literally on the side of the road bleeding to death. And the stories that I've heard them tell about Haiti at that time, and I actually went with them a little bit later when it was far safer, but the stories that they tell are more like the Good Samaritan in this parable than anything else I've ever heard. Literally traveling across Haiti, basically lawless society and culture at that time with rolls of thousands and thousands of dollars in Andrew's cargo pants shorts in order to buy food and water and medical supplies for children who would die without it. And he stood up in worship one Sunday, not long after he returned, and he wept as he talked about the grace of God in Christ to him and how that compels him and us into the places where people lie in need of both the message and the deeds of the gospel. And as he spoke, 
I was sitting with my wife in the, in the congregation. I leaned over to her and I said, every single woman in here wants to marry him right now. And they did. And one of them did. And we baptized his daughter, June, here in the sanctuary. She was the first baptism that we performed in here five years ago. And so friends, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Let's love our neighbors with the love that God has graciously poured into our hearts through his son and by his spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would make us into people like yourself. That we, you would do so by the grace of God extended to us in and through your son. We thank you for the life of Andrew Halton. We thank you for the lives of so many people in our church who exemplify, who, who preach the message of the gospel to the deeds of the gospel to us. May that be true of us as we do that for our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.